internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover a build of God and reach the side of the ocean floor. Hey everybody and welcome back to the show. I am very happy to bring you today's guest. Today I am sitting down with the legend from YouTube who's now really making a Twitter presence for himself, Mr. Uber Boyo, coming to us from across the pond. The the time difference makes it so that me and you kind of only catch each other in, in bits and pieces here and there on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So to finally get you to sit down with me for your undivided attention on, on my pod is like a it's a big deal for me. So I'm really happy to have you here and thank you for for agreeing to come on. Not at all, my man. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, it's really interesting how the time zones work because my morning, I'll usually catch the Californians, you know, ranting on their doing doing whatever they're doing. And then um, my evenings, you know, you're all getting out of bed and because the Irish run the world, of course. And uh, yeah. us Europeans, us Europeans do all the hard labor in the morning and then you just get out of bed and take all the credit for it. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's what it's been so far. Yeah, I'm, I'm an early riser, so I get to I get to read my uh, my English and Irish blokes belly aching about uh, all the various <laughs> things you guys like to belly ache about while I'm having my coffee. But um, <laughs> so I was I was getting started to say that me and you, I think, crossed each other's paths like three years ago. And we've we've kind of been on the same trajectory the whole time. And um, we we kind of both have like the same like main guys. We're both big into Jung. We're both big into Nietzsche. Uh, and as well as some other complimentary thinkers in there. And me and you have had uh, some really good conversations on Twitter spaces. So I want everybody to definitely check out Uber Boyo on Twitter and tune in whenever you see me or him in a space. And if you see us together, there's a good chance we're taking the whole entire space over because uh, <laughs> and when me and him get going, it's like we shut everybody else out. It'll be like a third party will be hosting, but it turns into the astral Uber Boyo show. That's it. For the pleasure of the people, 100 percent. And but yeah, so, we do. We have a lot of crossover, like young Nietzsche and all that. So go on, what are you saying? Well, I was gonna say, why don't you just tell my listeners where we can find your content? You got quite a big YouTube page, which is how I originally found you. And then we'll get right down into the right down into the discussion. Sweet. Well, I don't want to harass them, you poor people, but you can check out Uber Boyo across the internet. Uber like the taxi, and then Boyo like the Irish slang. And uh, yeah, I will be everywhere. I'll be Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. I'm going to start doing a little bit more on Twitter with like shorter videos and stuff like this. But yeah, I talk about Nietzsche and Young. I talk about storytelling a lot as well, speaking skills, these types of things. Check that stuff out if you're so interested. And hopefully the next hour or so will persuade you. So thank you very much. Yeah, man. So we're going to get right down into it because me and you had several conversations that didn't really get to properly finish that I'd like to kind of bring back. So just without further ado, um, the last time I really got to talk to you uh, at length, we I was talking about Nietzsche and the Ubermensch and you popped in and you gave some uh, you gave your perspective on it, which was like it's just like blew me away. It blew me away. It was like not only was it the closest I had found anybody to read Zarathustra to the way I read it, but you had a bunch of other stuff in there that I hadn't seen before, or maybe I had seen it, but you you put it so much more concisely and eruditely and so much more well-informed. And I don't know if you remember, but I was talking about uh, how I consider the Ubermensch to kind of be like one figure. You know, I worry that, what, well, what I was saying that you, you kind of came along uh, while I was talking about this was I was saying that the big problem is that self-help literature has become such a booming industry in America. And I grew up, um, you know, in the normie world. When I heard about Nietzsche, 
people very often talked about Nietzsche as like a self-help guru. And they, they kind of have the, and they talked to, you know, they talk about like Campbell and Jung the same way. And they have these like, uh, little package phrases that they, that, that like, like liberals or normies will rotely repeat. And that like, they don't really understand the essence of these thinkers at all. So one of them is like, uh, love your fate, uh, the eternal recurrence, the idea of the eternal recurrence, the idea of the Ubermensch, and they'll kind of throw this stuff in and like Joseph Campbell's follow your bliss, stuff like that. They'll kind of throw this into this like hippy dippy, you know, worldview. And, um, you know, I don't think, I think that makes people read Nietzsche the wrong way. Like, I don't think Zarathustra is like a self-help book. And you were agreeing with me on this, right? Like, I don't think the point of Zarathustra is for some, you know, uh, middle class, like, you know, some somewhat disillusioned, maybe maybe 19 year old going through an existential crisis uh, like they might read, say, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And then uh, like, oh, I'm going to go out and become the Uber bench tomorrow. I think I think rather Nietzsche was sort of distilling this one uh, one figure or this one person that may be able to kind of overcome the nihilism of the present age and become this one leading figure as opposed to like everybody with an undergraduate degree reading Zarathustra becoming the Ubermensch. So I don't know if this brings the conversation back up to you and what we were talking about uh, that day, but you had quite a lot to say about this. I have loads of thoughts. All right. Nietzsche is the self-help guru. Um, so many things I could go into here because it's, it's quite fascinating. First of all, I think, yes, this is incorrect. People look at Nietzsche this way and they say, you know, Nietzsche was trying to tell you how to do better uh, doing PowerPoint presentations and stuff like this. I'm like, I'm not quite sure he was there, my friends. I'm sorry. Um, but this is just the kind of consequence of where we are as as a people. Like this is, um, as as Nietzsche or, or the German philosophers would describe the zeitgeist. You know, we're very individualistic. We're very against um, certain ways of thinking. And so we are going to distort most things to, 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 to form this way. We're going to say, oh, Nietzsche's talking to me and Nietzsche wants me to go to the Tony Robbins seminars and all these type of things. Now, in some way, Nietzsche was talking to you, but he had a much different way of thinking about it and i think the easiest way you could reframe this is think about how people relate to jesus like if you said to yourself um i'm going to become jesus a lot of people would like they'd look at you and be like that's pretty that's pretty tall order brother like you know right even in this culture to be like you know power to you everybody can do what they want but it's like you know jesus is a bit of a tall order and it's that relationship to a god or an idol that's um actually people often miss it's it's this idea of right, all right i'm going to be the uber mention it's like well bro like you're gonna have to be levels higher than you probably are at, at now and i'm not sure any of us are going to pull that off there was a, you know there was only one jesus for a reason it's like saying i'm going to be julius caesar or alexander the great it's like right give us your best shot there my friend and let's see let's see actually what happens in practice because it's easy to talk this shit let's see what you can fulfill and um i think this leads down to understanding what nietzsche was trying to do nietzsche was um trying to set up an ideal like i use that word relationship to a god relationship to an idol relationship to an ideal they're they're all sort of the same thing and um, this this potential like what could man turn into if you imagine all the capacity we have in the modern world for for growing and doing powerful things this is going to sound a little bit like transhuman liberal but think of like our ability to use hormones our ability to use effective scientific training programs our ability to use advanced education the best quality nutrition in history the ability to do all sorts of crazy things like you could build a very powerful person if you took a very active focus in them from a young age to make them as as competent as possible you could make uh, you could make humans that are 
levels up than what we actually see nowadays. What's weird is that we have all that capacity and we don't use it. So when we're like creating people, which is what we mean by education, we tend to shove them in these mass schools. We tend to take the best people and sort of educate them at the pace of the the slowest people, like the 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 tyranny of the 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 the, the mob, if you will. And then, then there's all these problems with like, you know, we have this capacity to produce such high nutrition, but instead we spend it on giving people McDonald's so everyone ends up fat. And weirdly with this capacity, we end up driving everything downwards as a consequence. You only get one chance to educate a kid. And so almost all of us have been miseducated to some level. We're, we're all like falling short of the potential we could have had if we had like, you know, Philip of Macedon educating us from the start, getting Aristotle to kind of teach us and all this. And so I think this is a really, really interesting thought experiment because if we could set up a society that had the perfect education system that got the maximum amount of potential out of people combined with the technological power that we have now. So like sort of an Athenian or Spartan education system combined with the technological power that we have now. And we would be able to make really, really powerful people. But amazingly, we fall short of that. Like none of us have really had been ran through that. So in a really depressing way, none of us can actually be Ubermensch per se. We can't will it into existence. Like it's too late. So all we could really do is say to ourselves, well, here's a goal. Here's something we can aim at. Maybe we could try wrangle this this society, this, this these apparatuses out of the hands of these uh, botched, useless degenerates who are running the show. And maybe we could try grab all that from their hands and utilize it properly and set it up so that like our sons or our grandsons or maybe people even beyond that actually finally get to live in a generation that they have like, uh, you know, the highest possible education in winning reasonable um, situations combined with like breeding and health and everything, they, the highest standards possible. And combine that with the capacity of super technology. And you you might genuinely be the, the, you know, the grandfather of something that might be described as so powerful that it might be a level beyond man. It might be, it might be a new, like a new species. And what we mean by this is it's very easy to imagine. Like imagine you go and in a hundred years, there's like the health is so good. The, the, the understanding of longevity is so good that people are legitimately living for 150 years. Our IQs actually do get a little bit faster and stuff like this. And um, our educational techniques are so sophisticated that we do actually learn more. People are literally better than they were before. Like that could potentially be possible. And when you start to think about that, you think, you think what would I have to do to see a society that could produce such an ubermensch, like such a, a a man beyond man like that. A lot of things go right. Like you start to ask some very, very serious questions, including weirdly, humility. You sort of say, it's not going to be me, but how can I set up the project so it's someone in the future? And that's a very fascinating way to look at it. So I think that might lay the foundations for what we're blathering on about there. Yeah, no, that's great. I like that a lot. And any reader of Nietzsche is going to see baked right into your critique exactly where the problem is and exactly why we're not achieving our highest uh you know potential as a people as a culture as a civilization right now and um so the argument i was making and i'll I'll circle back to that in a second explain what i mean the argument i was making that uh, i'm not gonna be able to lay out here but to make it as simple as possible is that when you read zarathustra the prescription for how the uberman acts is nearly impossible to pull off if you really want to act and carry yourself in the world the way Zarathustra uh, recommends, you're not going to get very far. Um, you're you're going to come up against the law. You're going to come up against cultural norms and cultural institutions that are going to stop you or stymie you in some way. They're going to somehow uh, uh, push you to the back or even, you know, throw you in jail. 
uh, uh, the, the word I'm trying to avoid using here is canceled. But I mean, everybody knows what I mean when I say that they're going to they're going to cancel you if you start going out acting like the Ubermensch. Right. So uh, the thing that I started to understand through rereading Zarathustra a couple of times and trying to figure out like, OK, if you go act like this, you're not going to make it like why is he why is he telling you this now? And I started to come to the conclusion that he's talking about like a Caesar like figure. He's talking about the one guy who can come along and can get away with acting like this. And he's going to have to have a lot of uh, things in place that allow him to act that way. So there's only been a few figures in history, at, well, at different points in history, that uh, could be exemplified as the Ubermensch. And it's going to be someone like Julius Caesar or Augustus Caesar or someone like Napoleon or someone today like uh, a Donald Trump or an Elon Musk, someone who's got a, a ton of fame and who's got a ton of money and a ton of charisma to, you know, flip the bird to like customs and to morality and just do whatever they want. And then they get a bunch of people to follow them and they kind of uh, start society and history, really history on a different, newer trajectory. That the, you have the first Ubermensch or you have the first Caesar figure come along and he kind of smashes the decrepit institutions of morality and sort of uh, inverts them. Right. Because Nietzsche's like the inverter of values or the invaluator of values. Excuse me. Um, the Ubermensch comes along and he's the guy who can get away with it. He's the guy who can do it. All right. So and then one other thing I want to add on top of that before I let you come back in here is what you were talking about, about how we do have the science that allows us to like achieve all this human potential. But yet here we are, like we're, we're diddling around with online porn, online video games. This is, this is wallowing in nihilism as far as I'm concerned. And those aren't even the really bad things. I mean, we're, we're trying to give children uh, hormone blockers while they're still under puberty. Uh, we're, 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 we're with the space program uh, isn't being funded really anymore. Things such as this, we get caught in quagmires like Afghanistan and Iraq. These are all civilizational threatening uh, modes of behavior that if they continue to persist, it's going to drag us down to, to nothing. Right. So um, Nick Land puts it very well. Nick, Nick Land is one of my favorite Nietzschean thinkers today. And the way he characterizes it is he says, like, progressivism puts fetters on technology so that. Uh, technology, like you see this a lot with AI, for example, like technology has to be brought to heel by these like woke morals, this woke morality. So those fetters, those progressive fetters, these egalitarian fetters, which are, uh, are not allowing these things to achieve their potential, those fetters have to be smashed so that, you know, technology can do what it's supposed to do and human potential can go back, back on track. The space program can go back on track. And the people who are benefiting from progressivism and egalitarianism, they're not going to smash those fetters. It's going to be uh, a, a, an Ubermensch or a Caesar figure who comes along and smashes them. And that's why I mentioned someone like Donald Trump and and, and Elon Musk. Uh, they're the type of people who, who totally disregard and they scoff and they laugh in the face of that stuff and they have bitter contempt for it. And they get a lot of people behind them. So that's the type of figure who would come along and invaluate the values and then perhaps usher in a new you know, phase of society, a new phase of culture in which men can achieve their true potential, you know, in the cultural milieu that we've set out. 
Excellent. Okay. So I have four distinct things I want to bring up. We'll see if I can get them all in. Um, and I think I'm going to make you mad with one or two of them and the first one, especially. So, um, yes, this, this thing about the Ubermensch, we're looking at like Julius Caesar, Elon Musk, Donald Trump. Yes. As a political transformer. And maybe it's not us. I do also like maybe to do a caveat to the, the, the other thing that I was saying is that we definitely can have men of will. I think, um, the, uh, the potential for us to be like, totally free to express like our supreme vitalistic powers and become a creator of a new paradigm. Maybe that's not accessible to us. But at the same time, I don't want to stifle the way that we think and allow us to become petty and small because you can very easily do that. And an example of this, this is going to make so many people mad, I think is Andrew Tate. Because Tate is an example of a dude who was in a really, really bad situation. And he did he was a very reactionary. He is very against most of these cultural values and he shoves himself relentlessly. Now, obviously he's kind of like spinning things up and he's a propagandist marketer and he's like join Hustlers University. Yes, obviously he does all that stuff, but it's very fascinating to watch how much he humiliated um, the the progressive uh, worldview. Like he, he, he annihilated the institution of education for them. They had little boys going in and calling their, their teachers broke up boys and shit like this, you know? And he took over TikTok and things like this. And this is actually really really fascinating that you can see a dude who's like just some random twitter user like that's all he was four fucking years ago he was talking to me on twitter you know he went on my fucking podcast and then this dude through just organizational capacity relentlessness skill charisma charm pushes himself to such levels like he's now basically in prison because he was uh you know they obviously started to look into his 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 his, his business and they're like who's but, this loud mouth not to derail you but the thing that i kept hearing about twitter is he uh tate is that he schooled the al algorithm he figured out exactly how the algorithm work and he wrote it to fame is what is what people say about him. And I think that's absolutely correct. He he knew exactly how to put himself and put his persona out and, and had the algorithm boost it to like. Yes, uh, look, uh, he's he has other things, of course, like he's very charismatic. He's a hilarious storyteller, very good on camera. Like he's got these other traits too. He is giving a message. He was going up there and saying some pretty hardcore things as well that needed to be said for a lot of like young dudes. So whatever about that, the point being is that as a man of will, it's very interesting that he created so many options for himself. Like he subverted how much billions were poured into TikTok and he just took over the whole fucking thing and he owned it and he started promoting countervalent values on it. So that alone, I think is fascinating is that like a, a guy, he was in four years ago, he was in no position to do something like that. And he ripped so quickly into that incredibly powerful position. And it actually reminds me an awful lot of what like BAP would be talking about, where BAP is sort of saying, and um, not the Ubermensch, but he's saying like men of will are, are something that are not like they can really turn a situation around like that so quickly. Some dude who has that creative organizational force, like a Napoleon. Again, Napoleon's sort of an example. Now, Tate's much lower than Napoleon, but Napoleon's an example of waking up in progressive France. They're just after murdering the king. They're now essentially running a communist revolution. And Napoleon, this organizational force, takes over the army and establishes himself as god emperor and then rules the fucking country and then uses it as this like weapon to take on the entire entrenched order. It's actually so fascinating to see how much he can spin his situation. Um. And these these characters are representations of like so many virtues, bravery, creativity, organizational virtue, timeliness, you know, the, the kind of happenstance of great things happening and all of this genius. Like it's the only real word you can kind of say it and um, will all these type of things like this is the type of stuff that Bap definitely like fetishes about. He's like, yes, I love these dudes. Um, and then these characters are what that energy i think is what we're sort of saying is that like julius caesar shows up 
and it just everything goes right and he's able to pull stuff off but even though everything went right he is also like a monster of energy you know a monster of will as well like he forces himself upon the situation he forces himself in the goal he he was in debt he was a debt slave to pompeii and all that and he went out and won all this wealth and brought in and ended usury in rome for well or he he stifled usury usury in rome for a time being elon musk is another great example like elon musk was peak reddit you know apex redditor champion reddit reddit king and through his 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 creative energy and his, his his sincerity, he realizes that he's not going to go to space if he's forced to do diversity hiring in his space program. And so he takes such a big risk. He takes such a big risk. He turns around, and he says, I'm going to fuck up all my potential companies to try seize Twitter and turn it into something that promotes like you know sensible values. Maybe his values aren't fully aligned, but that doesn't matter. It's the fact that he had that will to, to push forward and he was an organizer and he executed. Trump, another great example. So these two are fantastic although caveat i'm not sure you could necessarily call them ubermensch you know they're they're great men they're they're, they're all these type of things like nietzsche would call them i think now nietzsche's a bit vague on this but nietzsche would call them maybe free spirits or um higher men higher men but i don't think he called them men who have gone beyond mankind itself that's almost like i think nietzsche was specifically trying to meme that as like an ideal as something genuinely unattainable i think the relationship would be very similar to how julius caesar would look at the gods like julius caesar is a god on earth but julius caesar is not zeus or mars zeus lives forever like that's different that's a level up that type of thing. And I think Nietzsche was actually trying to find that type of thinking. In fact, I think Nietzsche was trying to find the Greek mode of thinking where um, the will inside man to become a god is what he considered the healthiest will. Now, as you know, like some people are going to hear this and be like, Jesus, Steph, are you serious? But that level of just like Greek narcissism is the signal of the ape, the highest form of health. And it's an unattainable goal. Like you can't actually become a god. You can't actually live forever. But that desire to reach for something beyond yourself actually leaves you evolving. And so I think BAP has a great way of describing this. Like the Greeks were the first event in culture because they were running around in the mountains and they started to have these images of like perfect physiques and stuff like this. And they raised what would have been this like leftover evolutionary residue of like a, a, an advanced chimp. And they started to shape it and give it form and turned it into a, a human specimen. They, they actually showed us a new vision of what man should look like. And since then we have like Greco idealism, even to this day, it's, it's, it's like bodybuilding is another expression of this. And so you can see how that arrogance inside the Greek to be perfect, to be platonic, to be a God led to an evolution in the human form, which led actually to an ascension in human potential. And I, I think what Nietzsche is basically saying is that the Ubermensch is um, maybe even more abstract because the Greek thing is very much like a visual. You see a guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger and that's like, you know, godlike, that's divine. But Nietzsche is trying to capture an energy. Like you could say the spirit that was in Julius Caesar, Elon Musk, Trump, Napoleon, that, that organizational genius energy. If you imagine a, a person who's like built from the fucking ground up out of that stuff, or even more interesting. Could you imagine a society we build that starts to generate those people intentionally? We use the capacity we have in the modern world to generate people with this type of mind, this type of capacity, this type of genius. Because he says that all these characters are just are just happy accidents. It's, it's amazing that we have them at all. And they'll probably always show up. But imagine if you, if, is, it, is it potentially possible to organize a society aimed at generating out that type of genius, that type of like high man consistently. And then eventually would that lead to like an evolutionary upward ascendant trait where you start to get people that are just so amazing 
that they would look at us the same way as we look at chimps. They would be like, you're, you're, you're level down, you know, like IQ max off the charts, brave as like they have 10 balls, maybe even because of science and stuff like that, quite resilient to injury and death and living 200 years and stuff like that. Like it could, it could be possible. It could, you know, you never know a higher artistic creator. I don't know. You know, you never know with this stuff, but it's a very interesting thought experiment and it really opens your mind up. You know, our age is an age of smallness and, and that's like all of a sudden that just bursts open horizons that we just we don't even allow ourselves to consider. All right. OK. You said a lot in there. I, I agree with <laughs> I agree with most of it. Um, in fact, I don't disagree with anything, but I do. I do have a question. So let's um, first of all, the Tate thing, like I'm not like a Tate fan. I'm not really a fan of any of these guys, um, probably of the ones we mentioned. I, I like Elon Musk the most. Uh, but. One of the things I've noticed about like the peanut gallery, like the political peanut gallery is like no one is like sufficiently or at least the, the common person, the common commenter. Excuse me. Sorry, my man. What do you mean by peanut gallery? Apologies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just the 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 common person on, say, social media or in the podcast sphere or in the blogosphere who's commenting on like the news of the day and who's commenting on politics. So, you know, when you get it, when you go to a big website or a big, excuse me, a big Twitter account, the peanut gallery is just the comment section underneath. And sometimes oh, okay. they could get to thousands of comments. Yeah. And um, so the peanut gallery is like what the common uh uneducated or 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 moderately educated person may have to say about uh about a certain subject so the peanut gallery on tate has been going crazy i mean and of course people don't seem to understand that that's exactly what the plan is like it doesn't matter if you're criticizing the hell out of the guy it's generating you know clicks for him and no one i i don't think enough people are like sufficiently like machiavellian in their thinking so when you see someone like tate trump or musk who doesn't check every single box you have of like ideology, ideological purity. Uh, Jordan Peterson's another one that people love to go crazy on. It's like, okay, I don't agree with any of these guys on every single point, but they are smashing the fetters uh, of egalitarianism. They are, they are creating a bulwark or a readout against the like relentless torrent of this like woke nonsense. And the, I personally think, those people should be supported or at least they shouldn't be counter signaled. Um, you know, not that it really matters that much. I'm not saying the stakes are very high, but I personally am not going to be somebody who's going to to necessarily like say, oh, well, Andrew Tate does X, Y and Z that I don't like. So therefore, you know, he's my enemy. No, he's done something. And, and you gave all the great examples like he's done important things that matter. And, you know, Nietzsche talks about like the tightrope walker and he talks about somebody who like ushers the way across the abyss and even somebody who tries to take take the tries to traverse the abyss and maybe fails um those people are very 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 important because they show you like oh we don't have to just sit here you know blinking blinking out to pasture like the last man we can actually try to like confront the abyss we can actually try to confront nihilism we can try to confront like the woke egalitarian you know nonsense that is like bringing everybody low uh, because, of course, right, egalitarianism doesn't bring raise everybody up to the same height. It drags everybody down to the lowest common denominator. And someone like Tate might inspire, especially younger people, you know, not to take it lying down. So I think that's a good thing. So I think now is a good time to talk about slave morality versus master morality, because I definitely see those terms uh, 
tossed about a lot and I often don't think they're understood or or expressed properly and and mostly in the way Nietzsche means them. Um, you know, a lot of pe- uh, our, our mutual friend, Athenian Stranger, great guy, been on the show, hope to have him on again. He said something to the to me once to the effect of uh, a lot of people, uh, when they read Nietzsche, they're really reading themselves, which means they'll they'll read the book, but then they'll turn around and talk about it and they'll just express their own opinion. And I noticed that a lot with like slave morality and mass morality. People try to explain it in a way that all it's really doing is they're using those terms incorrectly to like propagate their own uh, worldview. And I've heard you talk about slave morality and mass morality, and I think you have it right. So I don't know if you want me to give you a specific starting point, but but I guess really the starting point is these guys we're talking about, these figures, love them or hate them. Andrew Tate is not a slave moralist. Donald Trump is not a slave moralist. Like these guys are doing their own thing. Uh, take that wherever you uh, feel comfortable or Okay, cool. I'd actually love to just open up some some thoughts on this and, and try to de-jargonize it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's some hilarious ones I've come across over the years. Like, uh, you know, it, it's people will literally just modulate it to suit their their own biases. So I have people call me up and basically say, uh, you know, like Christian rednecks or, or like, you know, that slave morality, you know, those people who are they're not liberal. They're not like up with the big city and all this stuff. And then you go talk to maybe a Christian redneck who reads Nietzsche and he's basically saying those urbanites and their slave morality. He's probably more accurate, to be perfectly honest. But still, you're you're getting this way that it's just it's turning into the way that you can conf- confront the world. Nonetheless, the way I often like to talk about it is about like high school, uh, high school jocks and nerds. And that kind of scares me if that's that's some type of psychoanalytic analytic reading of me i think i'm like oh fuck what does that what am i trying to say through through all of this stuff the most important thing to understand with um these concepts is that nietzsche is a psychologist nietzsche is a psychologist what do we mean by this he's we have freud who got celebrated as this guy who sat down and tried to come up with all these discussions these descriptions of these mechanisms going on inside of our heads and this is really important to understand because nietzsche is in some sense describing what he saw as a mechanism inside of the human mind so freudianism tries to create this like model for understanding your mind nietzsche was talking about slave morality and master morality in relationship to how we fulfill our passions and our desires and how we relate to our instincts and very like many very complicated things so the metaphor i love to use is as i said this jock and this nerd thing you go to uh you know the american pie film and you go watch this maybe you go you live through that or something like that what are you going to see you're going to see a jock what is the jock going to be he's going to be this big blonde motherfucker he's good at football he's like bro's name's chad or thad or brad or whatever it is And the way he lives in the world is very, he's not very much like a thinker. Now, this does not mean he's stupid, but he's got like this natural success that comes from the fact that his parents raised him well. He's well-bred, he's tall, he's handsome. They fed him good food. He's charismatic naturally. He's always talked to girls and they've always given him good signals. He's always been good at sports. So everybody's always high-fived him. He's naturally confident. And so the way that he lives his life is he's not sitting down there overthinking things. He's not introspective he's he's not like you know he just he just lives his life and he wins that's really his experience an awful lot and so he acts on instinct he's like a lion he doesn't ponder he just exists 
and has fun this way. And his attitude towards the world is not very hesitant. You know, he's he's happy to go out and take the girl off the, the other guy because he, he loves her and stuff like this. He hangs out with his bros and he's naturally loyal to his bros. When he goes and uh, goes and like plays football with the other team, he'll get in the fight with the other team because they're the enemy. He doesn't actually hate the other team, but he's just sort of like, you know, giving them a slap and making them realize that like, you know, we're, we're the fucking boys around here and you can go fuck off and all this type of stuff. And so he's got this very natural morality. And I actually think that's, most important to understand about what we might call master morality is that it's pretty much natural. It's it's close to like how a lion would think. There's this natural expression of your passions and there's not much, it's it's just really, really a trust of your passions. You just believe in what your, your instincts are telling you. And this can make you quite savage. This can make you quite brutal in many ways, but it has a sort of healthy expression. Everything kind of works this way. And you don't tend to have things like, as I said, deep, philosophical introspection you don't have neurosis that much because there's nothing your your instincts release themselves so there's no way that this stuff gets kind of trapped and this also leads to the downside of what you might call master morality or natural morality or more like you know primal morality is that um or primal worldview or a primal way of relating to your emotions is probably the best way to say it primal psychology is that you tend to be naive you don't you're not you're not introspecting this much these various things. So you tend to be a little bit out of touch. You don't realize the the, the true nature of the world. You don't think things true nearly as much. It doesn't mean you're not smart, but you're not, um, you're just a little bit aloof. You know, this is what you'll notice with these people. So the jock is kind of like head up in the clouds, but we'll get to that stuff later. Now, uh, the, the nerd... <laughs> The slave, you know, the nerd has a different approach. The nerd was not well-bred. He's got, he's got a, like a nasally voice. He's got a pencil neck. He's got a, a ostrich neck or whatever. And he can't win. He looks at Stacy and she's fucking Chad and he can't have her. He can't express his passions. He's got these strong, he's got the same passions that Chad has, but he cannot fulfill them. So the passions whirl around inside of him and torture him. And they scream at him. They scream inside of his soul. Why aren't you fucking Stacy? What's going on? And this calls on his conscience to switch into gear so this guy is definitely not naive he's fully aware he's like the dude looking up the black pill forums and stuff like that he's fully aware of like male or female sexual dynamics he's fully aware that he's not good enough he's fully aware of what's going on in this situation and he's he's tortured by this he's in his head he's always pondering he's always confused he's always wondering what's going on now this leads to a very interesting problem that he becomes First of all, he, he he starts to become bitter about this because he's unhappy that he can't have sex with 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 um with, with Stacy. So he might get angry at her. He might get angry at Chad. He'll become spiteful and resentful. That emotion that motivates him to procreate has to turn into something. It might turn into hate. So he'll be like bitter, hateful, crafty, and all these type of things. And a lot of very fascinating things can 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 happen because this is a sort of like loser psychology, loser morality, if you will. This is the way that their their heads work. But some very fascinating things can happen which are actually quite good. The the loser can't compete with Chad. He can't go up and fight Chad. He can't go on the football team and beat him because he's a dork. He wasn't well-raised. He's like skinny and all this. But he might get creative. He might sit in the corner and say, I just have to fucking be with Stacy. I need her. I need her no matter what. And that instinct, if it's strong enough inside of him, might push him to start a rock band or might push him to, to do lots of different things. And this is actually, in some sense, a good way that you in a loser situation can experience the psychosis of the, the slave, the failure and digest the property and go out and win again. This is like a, if you're a boxer and some guy beats you up like Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz, you you kind of say, fuck it, he bet me, better man won, I'm going to go and train and I'm going to come back. That's you reacting well to a loss. And the losers can do this. You know, you, you can fail in your life many times and come back and still become a winner. And it's sort of like this type of thing. Now, where, where this becomes the most fascinating is when 
this 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 loser doesn't doesn't invent necessarily something like maybe becoming a rock star or becoming an intellectual or a poet or a painter or something like this and tries to like you know stacy sees him as like oh he's so sensitive he's a sensitive young man i want to be with that guy like that's not what happens instead this loser wants to destroy chad and he be, he sets up sort of like a war against him and he becomes bitter and he becomes sour and he realizes that in order for him to get stacy he needs to get Chad out of the picture. Now, what happens here is he's now reacting against Chad and he's his his resentment, his desire for the girl and his resentment against the winner becomes so strong that he starts to become creative. This is where Nietzsche gets this word resentment, reactionary psychology. And so this, this loser might say something like, all right, I'll actually pretend to be my that girl's gay friend, and everything that Chad represents, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's, I'm going to call it ugly or crude, or I'm going to reevaluate the way that Chad lives. So instead of Chad being naturally handsome, Chad is kind of a little bit like um, insecure, and he has to lift all his weights. Instead of Chad being naturally like in his passions and funny and like expressive and impulsive, Chad is simplistic, uncivilized, gruggish, lazy. Instead of Chad being like ballsy and courageous, Chad is cruel and uncaring. And Ch instead of Chad being uh, acting on instincts and being being manly, Chad is um, unconscious and unempathetic and doesn't understand these things. And whereas I, I'm the gay friend who's you know like very stylish and very demure and very conscious and aware of all the the troubles and all this. And he might start hanging out with Stacy. He gets in her circles. He says to her like you know um, I'm all these great things and like he's, he he would like share these feminine values. And he might start to worm like green a worm tongue in her ear and say, listen, Stacy, Chad is all of the values that Chad has are bad. And so he, he creates this very interesting story that he sells to Stacy, where he's actually the handsome good guy and Chad's actually the, the terrible bad guy. And this, I think this is sort of the, the, the core essence of what we might understand as slave psychology, slave morality. Basically, the psychology of the loser distorts so much that he comes up with this way of, of talking that makes him fake like to tell a, a bullshit story about the nature of the world so that he can win. And basically Stacy buys into this and ends up uh, believing it. And this is like some naive, handsome European listening to a slave morality that is actually completely against life and his instincts and all these types of things. And, and that's, that's psychology. That's how you can understand the way that Nietzsche was pointing out to it. So slave morality is a reevaluation of the world, a reevaluation of Chad's values in favor of something that suits like the kind of weak, effeminate, nerdish gay man, that type of thing. So hopefully, hopefully that's clear enough. Uh, not only is that brilliant, it's a perfect way to explain what's happening right now. It's a perfect way to explain what I kept making reference to egalitarianism and things like that, how everything has to be brought to the lowest common denominator. Now, what you're describing here was expressed very well and very eruditely by Harold Bloom when he talked about, are you familiar with him? Or have you no, read him? I was going to look him up here. Yeah. He, well, <clears throat> excuse me. He talks about the the politics and the culture of resentment. And um, that's what is ascendant in America right now. It's the bug men or the last men. Right. So we have this term bug men, which is sort of a take on last men, although it's not exactly the same thing as last men. Uh, last men. Well, we'll different. Maybe we could differentiate between the two another time. Uh, but what you're describing is more the bugman archetype than the last man archetype. And the bugman archetype is the resentful, weaker man who who may actually be able to find success in some way in today's culture because he's able to weasel his way around these things. And the way these people now now. So the culture and the politics of resentment are made up by uh, uh, people of color 
uh, women, feminists in particular, propagate the 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 well, well, everything we understand of is wokeness, right? Anything that you call wokeness is the culture of resentment. Um, so when and what Harold Bloom talked about was when he said that, like, you have a. Uh, black literary studies you have uh, women's literary studies you have marxist literary studies and you have gay literary studies all these people are doing is tearing down the the edifice yeah. of the western canon and harold bloom says <laughs> obvious i mean this is so fucking obvious i can't believe this has to be said but it does of course the way to really do that would be to write your own canon and to present mm -hmm. your cultural mm -hmm. production to compete. But these people don't have the chops to do that for whatever reason. Um, and they come up with all sorts of excuses of why they can't do it. So because they can't do that, they come up with this resentment critique where they tear down their betters. And you see it all over our culture. I mean, you see it all over our culture, uh, literally tearing down the statues of great men. And, you know, this stuff goes this goes goes like a, a wildfire because, of course, they tear down one statue and they say, oh, well, here's a reason why, because he was a bad person. And then they just go and tear down every other statue and they have all these reasons why. And then what are the statues they build in to replace those? Uh, George, uh, uh, George Floyd, who was a literal drug addict, ex-felon, <laughs> you know, who who never really did anything for society in his whole life. Those are the people they erect statues for. So that's the culture of resentment, um, the politics of resentment. So these people do embody slave morality, but this is the way you described it is very contemporaneous, right? When Nietzsche talked about slave morality, he based the concept. Of course, he did apply it to his day as well, obviously. But when he talks about the inception of slave morality, and this this is where we're going to get real controversial today, uh, he was, of course, talking about Christian morality. And the, the inception point of slave morality was the morality that Christ preached to his followers and to his people. And it's the morality that the church and Christianity took up. And Nietzsche's argument is that to be a Christian is to kind of adopt slave morality. And slave morality does two things. It 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 raises the slave up to a higher position, at least in the in the uh, uh, in the cosmology of Christianity. It puts them on the same moral footing as everybody else. Puts everybody on the same moral footing. But it also brings down the the potential, you know, uh, blonde beasts. So just to, I'm going to let you pick it up here, but let me just make one last distinct uh, distinguish one last thing here. So the people Christ was preaching to were literal slaves. I mean, well, excuse me. It's not that it's the pe people that Christ was preaching to necessarily. He was pre preaching to like the rabble. He was preaching to like the outcasts. He was he was he was laying on hands to the lepers and to the diseased. And uh, he was talking to like. Uh, widows, you know, widows who like their husbands died and they're kind of like uh, floating out in the breeze in Rome because they don't have the same rights as a man would if 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 his father died and he inherited the estate. So these women were sort of um, and then there's the uh, uh, casting the first stone. Right. He was he was defending the, the, the woman who cheated on her husband. So 
All of these people that he's speaking to are the outcasts and the downtrodden and the people that the Roman moral system and the Roman political and cultural system like kind of just left out in the cold as as the rabble. Uh, these were the people that he was preaching to. And then the people who took up his message in the you know first few hundred years that Christianity was getting underway were the slaves and they were the women and they were the disenfranchised. And basically, when when Nietzsche says slave morality. Uh, you need to take him literally at his word. This is the morality that slaves are allowed to adopt. And this is the only way, in my opinion, that you can really understand Christianity. When I hear people putting their own personal interpretation into Christianity, they're basically pulling things. I know Uber Boy was giving me a look because he knows I'm going into real dangerous territory. But I know he's <laughs> I know he's going to be there right with me, though, because I've talked to him before. So just get this is where you have to buckle up for the rest of the show here. When oh, people God. start giving their interpretation of the Bible, they're bringing things from outside. When you read the Bible, okay, what Christ is saying is this is how you have to act as a subject of Rome in order to survive. We are subjects of Rome, and if we don't act like this, of the way I'm telling you to, they're going to kill us. And if you don't believe me, think about the, the destruction of the temple and whatever wow. it was. I think it was 66 AD. He was preaching to his people to stop spitting in the face of the Romans, because if you don't, they're going to come and wipe us out. And that is exactly wow. what happened. That is oh, exactly actually, what happened. That's actually very interesting. I never really thought of it that way. Sorry, man. Go on. Go on. Well, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. You're my guest. I don't mean to abuse your, your time here. Um the other thing too is like uh if you're uh well okay you know what I'll just leave it at that but the last thing I want to say yeah. is that the slave morality right so if you're a slave Rome doesn't care about you Rome doesn't care if you die your master is allowed to kill you I mean it's it's all through the ancient writings masters will kill their slaves uh at at, at the drop of a dime uh, on a whim for anything if they break if they break a vase in their house boom they're dead right so nietzsche gives you uh, excuse me christ gives you a set of morals that you can adopt to survive in that setting and he also tells you that god loves you so now no one no one in the world loves you you're you're a degenerate slave you're you're a leper who's being left in the street to die uh he comes along and tells you god loves you okay that is the morality that a slave needs why would an aristocrat aristocratic roman need that they don't that does nothing for them. They're the favorite of the gods. They're the favorite of the state of Rome. So they don't need that. So that's literal slave morality. So it raises those people up. Slave morality for the aristocrat, though, you flash forward to the Middle Ages and you have uh, the, the landed aristocracy and the equestrians who, who were the knights, who were known as knights. And they have their own property and they have serfs. OK, these are their subjects. And it's well known that violence by the aristocrats committed onto the serfs was just rampant all through every feudal society that there was. Why is that? Because there's a very practical reason. Because the aristocrats and the knights were the ones who went into battle. So they had to train from five years old to be, to be soldiers and to be warriors. And one of the ways they did that was to perpetrate violence against their subjects and against their serfs. So the church comes along and tries to preach to them to practice slave morality for them to embody slave morality. They're the masters. Their morality is to treat these people like they're cannon fodder. 
and to treat these people like their training facility for their children to learn how to go out and be violent killers because they're going to grow up to be in a shield wall when they're older, right? So the church comes along and tries to like push this on the aristocracy and says, you, you should treat, you should act like Christ towards your serfs. And you know what? I'm sorry. People don't want to hear this. People don't agree with this. I'm telling this to you because I think you're going to be sympathetic and understand me. The aristocrats did not say, you know what? You're right. We're going to be like lambs and we're going to treat our, our peasants like Christ. That's not what happened at all. They said, fuck, no, we're not going to do that. These are our fucking serfs. I could treat them however I want, but I want to go to heaven. So I'm going to pay the church an indulgence to pray for my soul so I can spend my life treating my serfs this way. And I still get to go to heaven when I die. And this is why the Protestant Reformation happened, because the selling of indulgences became so corrupt that the church was getting like massively wealthy. So they were saying to the, the powerful uh, aristocrats, go ahead and do whatever that is. Start a war with whoever you want. I'll give you the blessing. As long as you give me a thousand acres of fertile farmland when you die and put it in your will, give it to the church. You could go start a war with whoever you want. And um, it, it became corrupt. So these are I'm just trying to juxtapose uh, why slave morality is sort of taught to the slaves and then how the church tries to impose it onto people who are not natural or spiritual slaves or losers or bug men or nerds, like you were saying. They want the jocks to act like the nerds and they want the jocks to treat the nerds like equals. So I'm sorry for uh, thank you for indulging me. I know you have a lot to say on this, though, because I've talked to you a bunch of times and I really, uh, I really just stepped into the most controversial territory this show has probably ever gone just now. So I hope you feel I hope you're proud of yourself, Uber boy. We're going to mask off. Well, look, I'll I'll deal with um, Christianity and Judaism first, because I think this is very, very interesting. So continuing with that metaphor I was describing earlier, you have the nerds. Um, and he can't get Stacy and the jock can get him quite naturally. So the nerd might become a rock star. He might become a, uh, he might become a, a painter, whatever. And that could maybe charm Stacy. He does this alternate strategy and that's the nerd being inventive. And that's actually like, it's all credit to him. You know, Nietzsche himself says this, that the, this, the nerds, the <laughs> just say the nerds, but he says the weak actually through their craftiness make history interesting because if, if it wasn't for the week history would just be the story of like you know king defeats king after king defeats king this type of thing so this is where things become really interesting so what can happen then at the very very bottom of everything is that you can have the nerd eventually just get so so creative in the way that he's approaching this that he just reinvents the whole nature of reality in order to persuade Stacy to come to bed with him. So he goes and he sits down and he says, um, he starts acting gay around her and he becomes a gay, a gay best friend and he starts to slander the jock. And he says everything that the jock represents, because jock represents nature and what's natural and what's healthy, everything he represents is, is bad. Now, what the slave is doing here is creatively falsifying. What the nerd is doing here is creatively falsifying the nature of the world in order to achieve his goals now it's very very interesting very very interesting the slave is coming up with a new story about how the world works so the nerd says this and it works so he continues with it and he starts to say this now now he's after inventing it's like a philosophy he's invented this narrative and what's interesting about narratives is that 
I can just say it and then it gets installed in your head. And if it's close enough approximation to the world, it can kind of work. So what we have now is we have this like slave, this nerd worldview, this loser worldview that is very effective for the loser to survive. Nietzsche has this profound statement where he says, we have art, so we do not die of truth. You see, the truth is not necessarily a useful thing because the truth is depressing. The truth for the nerd is basically him sitting down and being like, I'm a nerd. I should just die. I should just exit out of the genetic pool. But of course, life does not want to die, even inside the nerd. So the nerd's will, his psychological will at the very least, is like, I'm going to become creative. I would rather lie about life, tell some artistic bullshit story I made up that allows me to get Stacy and survive. And so that's interesting. It's fundamentally creative. Now, what you see then is this psychology appearing everywhere, all across the world. You see it all the time. I'm Irish. How do we relate to the English? We say the English are Sauron. You know, we say the English are the greatest evil that have ever existed on the earth. They're these arrogant tyrants and all this. The Irish, we have a slave uh, worldview towards the English. We, we resent them. We are bitter towards them. We blame them for everything. And we come up with a story inside of our head that we noble Irish are, are these poetic, creative, magical people who write all these brilliant stories and all this type of stuff. And we we would actually be fantastic if the English didn't just oppress us all the time. But this is what the English the English just can't help it. You know, the English just wake up every day and be like, I hope the Irish aren't busy building again, the Coliseum again or something like that. We better go fuck them up and all this stuff. Now, it's not reality. Like in reality, we're drunk all the time. We're not very the best organizers. We are quite poetic, but we don't necessarily have the virtues of like a Germanic Englishman who's able to just get everything in order and run a giant global empire. So we resent the master. We resent the English. Because um, because it keeps us it keeps us motivated it keeps us moralized if you will. Now this same psychology appears happens in Babylon with Judea. What you have is um, jocks. You have these Israelites. They're all jocks. They follow Moses, and they're all like big big chads. And they're like, we're going to take Jericho. It's so fascinating reading the Bible this way, you know. And so what's the story that God says to Jericho? He's like, run around the city three times and then murder every single woman and child inside there and kill all the men. And it's like, Yahweh, like Richard Dawkins reads that and he's like, Yahweh, Yahweh, you, you awful man. Oh my God, it's terrible. But this is what he's basically saying. He's like, this is, this is pure expression of, of conquering instincts. Yahweh was a, a jock back then. Yahweh, Yahweh obviously is a representation of the Israelite will to power was, um, was, you know, he, he, he allowed them to do that stuff because he was a, he was a God of a conquering people. So the Israelites achieved that. And that's fantastic. They set up their empire. That's the whole story of the Bible and the Kings. And then something very awkward happens. Israel falls because they get degenerate. They begin to decline. Whatever reason, they become weak. They can't militarily assert themselves. And then I think it's the Assyrians come down and the Assyrians fuck them up royally. And so they destroy all the Israelites, send them off into Europe and all this. And then they go and they uh, they 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 have a big problem. The Israelites are lost. And then it's all that's left is little Judea at the bottom. And little Judea is like this little province. It'd be like maybe if America got invaded and all that was left was Texas. So imagine Texas trying to like, you know, you have to rebuild America based on Texas. You're not going to quite get the same whole story. It's going to be the Texas version of America. So this is what you have. You have all these Judeans down the bottom. They've managed to avoid the Assyrians, but they're sort of like, oh, fuck, we're not quite what we used to be anymore. And then the Babylonians show up. So another great empire comes along and they fuck up. They conquer Judea and they take the Judeans into slavery. And this is the first great time that this happens. And something happens inside of their minds because this is what happens. The Babylonians are the jock and the Judeans are the, the losers. 
and they are stuck. They've had their, their soldiers killed. They don't have any farmers anymore. So all that's left is a load of priests and a load of slaves. Precisely what Astral's saying here. So all that's left is a load of priests and a load of slaves. And they need to live. They need to come up with a story about how they can survive. And so this is where they start to create the, 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 the priests, innovate, and they create they artistically create a way of looking at the world that is going to allow these, these people to, to survive in slavery in Babylon. They're going, they're going to give them a story. And this is where they come up with this idea that, like, you know, the Babylonians are arrogant and what is happening right now. God is planning to give us the promised land once again. But right now we're going through a struggle. We're being tested by God, of course, because that's what it has to be. You can't you can't be anything else. And so they they start to form this story. It's like, well, why does God not love us? And he's like, well, God actually does love you. He loves how you can't you you're not violent because they couldn't be violent. He loves how you're you're very diligent. And you read the books all the time. We love how you're you're very like you follow the priests. He loves how you're you're humble and you work together as a community because that's all the fuck they could do. They could read their book. They could hope for the future. They could be they could pray every single day. They could do all these things. That's all they could do in this situation. And of course, all the things that a Babylonian king could do is like go have sex with beautiful women go and pick up the slave girl bring her in and breed with her all like go and um, have the best food go and conquer territories go and create high art all those things all those natural expressions of course the, the priests and the slaves together would sort of say well look they can't do that so they'll say well that's them that's going to be their downfall that's actually them being satanic they're expressing these horrible passions and God doesn't like that. God sees that. And he's like, oh, what a hedonist. What a disgusting, oh, what disgusting beasts they are. One day I'll get them. Believe me, just let them express like that. But I'll get them soon for you. Don't worry. And what's happened now is the exact same psychology as the nerd. They've falsified the nature of the world. Babylon, the Babylonians are not naturally expressive, healthy, creative people. Instead, they're demons, they're tyrants. They don't represent life at its apex. They're not creating high culture. Instead, they represent evil and this is where you see this formula. He talks about it in genealogy of morals, where the slave revolt in morality happens. And this is a big word. And what you see is the power, beauty, health, instincts, passion, evil, demons, bad, Satan. Weak, humble, frail, pathetic, down low, downtrodden, good, angelic, heavenly. This is the equation that gets set up. And that's, that's reformulating the world. It's, it's so creative. Now, that's all well and good. It's a very fascinating way to look at Judaism. It's so fascinating that Nietzsche would like didn't like people who were like blaming the Jews for everything. But at the same time, this might be the most penetrative, perceptive critique of Judaism you'll ever find. Like he 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 genuinely just didn't like being simple about this. But he's like, listen, you can actually talk about the the value of of this. And then he kind of has this big question: It's like, well, Judaism gets brought back over to Judea, and they've gone from Babylon, and now they're moved back. But they're not the same motherfuckers anymore. They've fully uh, um, crystallized this way of seeing the world, this morality, this this worldview, this story, this religion. This is it's it's sitting there and it's it's so pregnant. They've completely made up this whole version of reality, and now they're they're refining it and stuff like this. And so something very dangerous happens. It's like when you eat a piece of meat. You know, you eat a piece of meat and there's like a, a tapeworm cyst inside of it. That's not good because then a tapeworm is going to go inside your body. Now, Rome eats Judea. Rome conquers Judea. And sitting in the middle of Judea is this story. And it's like a tapeworm cyst. It's very interesting. It's like, oh, God, this way of looking at the world that is fake is, is inside of this. And, of course, they're Judeans. The Romans come in contact with this. And the Romans meet the Judeans. And they're like, these guys are, are, are fucking atheists. Like, this is absurd. They, they meet the Judeans. And they're like, 
They, it's, they call them atheists. This is so profound when you think about it. The Romans are like, these people don't believe in God because God is natural. God is aligned with, it's the perennial God of the pagan world. You know, he's naturally aligned with reality and he affirms your passions and your instincts. Why else would he give them to you? It's so fucking obvious. You know, what is he here to, is he just torturing you like for some game? No, he's given you these passions because this is important for health and creativity and truth in life. But of course the Judeans don't believe that. And they're like, well, these guys are all atheists. And this is really what starts to happen then is Christianity is born out of this. Now that's a big fucking problem because Christianity cannot be separated from that psychological disposition fundamentally it cannot be separated now this is a big issue because then when christianity you understand it it's this it's this judaism and judaism is a falsification of life judaism is a, a representation of a very advanced form of slave morality or resentful morality or or this falsifying of life specifically but there's other expressions of it too but christianity is an even more refined version of this you know, because it's almost like you could say Jesus and all them were like the, the the slaves of the Jews. So you have the Jews, they're the slaves of the Romans. And then you have the slaves of the Jews within it, the, the lower of the Jews. And so it's like, it's just going to be so refined and all this. And then um, they this turns into a worldview that seeps into Rome like a tapeworm cyst and then um, gives birth to itself inside of Rome. It grows inside of Rome and and it, it just rips the whole thing apart. And then, then this is it overturns the entire philosophical story of what the world is by taking over Rome and creating the Catholic Church. It's so profound. Like it just blows your mind the more you think about it. And so this is where Roman values are overturned. And of course, a lot of people say, well, you know, that was a good thing that had happened and Christianity made Rome strong. It's like <laughs> the, the Christians got into Rome. And when they finally decided to go all in on Christianity and ban the gods, they did that in 39, 391 AD. Rome was invaded for the first time in nearly a thousand years. 19 years later, 19 years after that, Rome is done. It was finished. It was it was a conquered territory at that point. Do you have any idea what just happened there? You have a morality, a worldview, a way of seeing the world that denies the nature of the world, is completely out of touch with reality, that the slaves believe. And if you believe, if you think like a loser, you become a loser. The Romans adopt this, and within 19 years, they are losers again. They go from being the, the super dominant kings of the world to being losers again. They turn their backs on the pagan power gods and they are losers. They fail. They lose as a consequence. They fall down and become slaves to Germans. That's astounding when you think about it, when you really just let it digest. And of course, how did it get into Rome? Astral said this as well. These are really hard facts. You know, there's, you know, Christians often listen to this and it's, it's just, it's very brutal, you know, but you have to kind of say, fuck, if I'm going to tell the truth, I have to try look at this and digest this and make sense of this. It did not come from the Chad warriors. The last holdouts of, you could say, paganism was the army and stuff like this. The people who believed in Rome in, in Christianity were urbanites, were women, Karens, rich upper middle-class women, so liberal women, urbanites, um, urban bureaucrats, foreigners and immigrants. It was a religion of the superstitious foreigners, immigrants. It's the exact same demographics as you see in the woke movement right now. It's It floors you. Actually, all the men, all the assertive creative men in Rome were worshipping a different thing called Mithrasism. This was all the high status men and all the army were worshipping this. And then some of them were trying to break back into like Hellenism, this is like Julian the Apostate. And so the people pushing this was like the woke communist demographic that which is just floors you when you realize this christianity persuaded them tellurian one of the writers from northern africa was boasting about this the whole time he was saying oh the urban like the, the, the urban centers are all pagan 
when Rome converted, basically it was 50-50 in the population. The entirety of the, the, the rural population was practically pagan. The word pagan means rustic rural person. In yeah. France, you still have this word called pagani. You know, it's the same. It means rural man. You know, it's the same dynamic as the urbanite guy live in in uh, New York complaining about the rednecks. That's the, the pagan is the word redneck. And interestingly, the word Nazi is also uh, a slander of national socialists to mean dumb bumpkin um dumb bumpkin from you know Munich or something like this. So it's, it's weird how this stuff works. It's fascinating how this stuff works. And nonetheless, this is what, what you see happening here. So Christian morality, Christianity itself was a revolution against the the Roman state and the Roman value system. Now, whatever, these things happen. So like, you, you know, you can't, you shouldn't cry over spilt milk, whatever. But I think the reason why Nietzsche was so ardent about this is that, I, as, he, as he said, it's like a loser's attitude is not good if you want to be a winner. And he was basically saying, we need to reevaluate the way that we look at the world, our value system, and understand that if we want to win, it's very simple. We just need to start understanding how we think like a winner. And the scary thing is, is that, well, if we, if this critique holds up, does that mean you just have to drop Christianity on first principle and say, no, I have to I have to reform my way of thinking and making a, a winner's consciousness? And that's a hard thing to, to think about. It's a really, really difficult thing to think about. Now, I have loads of other things I could, I could say about Christ, about slave morality in a more specific sense, uh, even about some of the stuff Bloom said. But I'll drop it there because that's, a, that's an awful lot of rant in there for the moment. That was great. No, that was absolutely great. And that is the same, uh, not just the same demographics, but the same tactics that the woke use. Um, and yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go, I already had gone on for so long, but, uh, the slave morality is a, a type of morality or it's a, it's a religious system or religious thought and a promise really, because Christianity is a promise. And, and, I, and I'm, and I'm talking about both when Christ was alive, spreading his message, as well as after he died and Christianity spread throughout Rome. Um, it was something to give to include the slaves and like to to give them some sort of like hope or purpose or feeling of not not necessarily um enfranchisement because they were going to this is the key point this is the key point they were going to stay slaves for their entire lives and their offspring and their children were their their entire generational lineage was always going to be slaves so this is something this is why it's like uh, I understand why like Gnosticism grew out of this because they lived in such a way that they were never going to be able to transcend their station in life. So they had to be given this promise of something that they could have after they died. That's the whole promise of heaven. And that's how I initially understood slave morality was the promise of heaven, because you're going to be a slave for the entirety of your life. But uh you know, if you're a good Christian, because Jesus and God loves you and everyone, when you die, you're going to have the same rewards and riches in the afterlife as as the kings and the aristocrats do. Now, I have mm -hmm. I have something to pick up what you said, uh, but I want to take a quick break and uh, maybe have a musical interlude, and we'll come back and we'll sort of uh, we'll take us to the end. Does that sound good? Sweet. Yeah, I have loads of things that I could complete some thoughts there, but if if we're going to do that in the second section, that's yeah.
everybody. Welcome back. And uh, we're here for, with Uber Boyo for part two. So Uber Boyo, I want to um, I want to pick up what you were saying. And I have a way I, I'd like to transpose what you were saying about, you know, uh, Roman history and slave morality onto what's going <laughs> on today with communism and, and then wokeism, as you already alluded to. But um, I want to let you before I do that, I want to let you kind of tie up the loose ends you have and the, the other disparate thoughts that didn't necessarily work into that narrative. But I've heard you give more or less that account before. And I would have to say that's probably the best narrative account uh, all the way from the beginning of Judaism to the end of the, the fall of the Roman Empire that I've ever heard uh, nice. anyone say not not necessarily of the historical period as such. But as an explanation of what slave morality is and how it came into being and what it does to a society that adopts it as its mm -hmm. prevailing morality, moral code. So uh, please, I'm, I'm, I'm sure my listeners are just as excited as I am to hear you kind of tie these up, tie this up. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, well, look, that's like, as I said, I build that premise where we have a, a natural explanation of it, like the nerd and the jock. All right. So that's cool. Then we build on the second premise, which is like, all right, how does this scale to tribes? And do we have any historical examples? And I could go into the Irish and English at length, you know, and I've, I've done that elsewhere. But the Irish have this relationship with the English. You can see it perfectly fine. Now, Christianity and Judaism, Judaism and Babylon is an example. Then Christianity and Rome. Like you can see these same dynamics as the nerd and the jock playing out in this. And actually the profound way that it scales is very, very fascinating because fundamentally what, what it is, is about lying about life. And it has this infectious quality where if the jock begins to believe it, he basically becomes a loser. It's very, very fascinating, which also makes you ask questions if that if the nerd begins believing the winner's mindset, does he become a winner? Which actually is a little bit true. Um, now, if we want to scale to the current day, well, I'll do that in a second. But there's some caveats because, again, with Nietzsche, you know, we have this tendency where we want to say that slave morality is evil uh, outright and that mass morality is good outright. We should all be masters and all this. But these things are not straightforward. Like the master morality loses for a very specific reason. First of all, there tends to be more slaves. But more specifically is the masters tend to be naive. You know, they don't tend to realize that these Christians coming in, the, the, slavery and failure makes you crafty. The nerd sits in the corner and thinks through a plan. The masters don't. The masters are like, and you see this all the time now. They're like, why don't we just let everybody into America? Why don't we just let everybody come and they can share in our values? And if we just educate them, they'll be nice like us and all this. It's like, these people hate you. I'm sorry, but they're they're mad at you. It's like the, the English saying, oh, we should just let all the Irish come into England. It's like, I don't think you should do that. You know, we're not that bad, but I still don't think we've completely conquered the the angst and envy inside of our souls. And so we would, um, I don't think we'd run England quite as well type thing. And you, you need to understand this is that the, the, the masters tend to be naive. In fact, England is such a great example of this. England just committed such a, a atrocious self-own because they're constantly trying to like this is where an awful lot of like uppity liberalism comes from is from the English Empire. And they 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 look, you know, they look at all their colonies and all this type of stuff. And they're like, oh, we need to bring them here and and turn them into us. And they end up like literally forming a death cult in their own culture where they destroy you know, they hate their own English people and they 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 welcome all these people in. They just destroy their own empire and everything. It's just this total implosion because of this naive, uppity, um, lack of, like, out of touch with reality uh, way of approaching. And why is that? It's because the sons of the great English conquerors who took over the world never had to really struggle in their lives. They never had to get in a ship and sail around the world. They had incredible amounts of wealth. So what happens? They become naive. They become lazy. They become lazy bones. 
you know, and for this reason, it's like Prince Harry. They become dorks. They become losers because they never had any challenge. Whereas you have some psychopath like Tate who grows up in a ghetto and just is like, you know, so brutal and so, so self, so instinctive, so out to win for himself. Why does he have that energy? It's because like he was sort of forced into that position to need it. Now, on the flip side, slave morality is not necessarily outright bad either. Slave morality does give you First of all, it's creative. Now, the masters are naturally creative as well, but slave morality has its form of creativity. It's very creative to, to, to invent a whole new nature, a whole new version of the world. Like that's interesting to say the least. And it also comes along with a couple of other things. More specifically, trauma. One of Nietzsche's most beautiful quotes is, blessed are the forgetful because they get the better even of their errors. And and he constantly talks about how happiness is related to forgetfulness. So these naive masters are actually happy. They're the, the people who are, are reaping the rewards of, of their strong ancestors and they're enjoying their happiness. Unfortunately, it's going to lead to their downfall, but this is just the way of life. Nothing lasts forever. C'est la vie. Now, the slave is not like that at all. The slave is not winning. He is not experiencing joy and bliss and happiness. Instead, he might be getting beaten. He might have to sit there strapped to a chair while the Roman master comes in and rapes his, his wife. He might have, and then he has to raise the kid or something like this. He doesn't, he doesn't win on any level at all. He he's a loser and his life is pain and suffering and trauma. It's like Tate in the ghetto, you know, he, he doesn't experience a joyful life. He experiences a hard life, man. And this creates conscious this creates scars this is even neuroscientific pain creates consciousness they're actually fundamentally related and because of this pain creates in craftiness i'm not going to say intelligence but craftiness uh memory these types of things come from this our ability to to hold a grudge to to think long term to be patient these types of these are virtues and they come from the slaves patience holding grudges memory awareness, consciousness, these things are more refined inside of the slave. The slave is the type of guy who can shut up and put on a nice face and say to the, the, the Roman master, it's like, yeah, I'm the slave becomes much more psychological. He's much more aware of the Roman. You know, he's like, they're this naive, stupid Roman. I'm going to, I'm going to hang out with him. So he shows up and he's like, Hey, yeah. Oh yeah. I'm with this Christianity. It's all beautiful. It's all good. Everybody loves everybody and all this type of stuff. Hey, why don't we come to our party? And then he gets the Roman drunk and then he gets the Roman's wife drunk. And then maybe he cahoots her and stuff like this. And he, he gets a, a better, a better looking girlfriend as a consequence of all these types of things. The slave can be crafty. The slave can be deceptive, just like the nerd stealing Stacy from the jock. It's very important important to understand this so through trauma he gets these virtues of patience and memory and all these types of things now this is also related to his vengeance his resentment this is why nietzsche says the greatest haters in history have always been the weak because you get these priests you get these characters who are nerds who are not jocks and they have a combination of all these forces they resent the jock they have this way of seeing the world where they want to destroy the jock. It moralizes them because it says to them that it's related to God. They've also got this patient, long-term planning system because they've got nothing else to do. And they're also bitter and nasty about it. So their ability to get vengeance is, is magnified beyond belief. The master, the 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 Roman, the, the aristocrat, the European aristocrat, he might beat up the peasant. He might rape the, the, and all this type of stuff. But you don't find, like the, where you're going to find a torture chamber is going to be an awful lot closer to the, venge the vengeful weak man type thing. And you know this from like red pill manosphere stuff, you know? Who's more scary? The jock who's going to like fuck you and leave you and maybe like punch you every, every now and again or something like this you know the, the or the weak man who's going to like do something terrible like stalk you and try to hurt you and all this because he can't get a girlfriend it's obviously 
the, the 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 second dude is more dangerous. The weak man is more dangerous. The strong dude usually is in control of himself and doesn't need to express himself violently upon you and all these types of things. Now, the point being here is that the virtues, uh, like this is complicated. This is sophisticated, but a blend of, of interesting virtues pop out of both of these. Downsides, naivety. It's downsides of mass morality, naivety. But upsides is passion, instinct, creativity, fertility. And um, downsides of slave morality is obviously vengefulness, uh, deceitfulness, lying about the world, a loser's mindset, prone to failure. But also on the upside, incredible patience, incredible dynamism, incredible um, craftiness, these types of things. <clears throat> now, what's fascinating about Christ is that Christ, Nietzsche constantly says about Christ, he's like, he's so interesting because he's almost like the the, the cure, the final cure to slave morality. Because Christ is the ultimate, like Nietzsche says, he's not, he wasn't a God. He wasn't anything that people believe he is. He didn't raise from the dead, none of that stuff. But he's sort of a representative of like a, a kind of like a, not a self-help guru, but like a representative of, of truly something like a Buddhist, a Buddhist priest, so a, a true wise man. Like Nietzsche actually admired Christ as a genuine wise man. Why? Because Christ is preaching um, essentially a sort of like forgetfulness. The, the forgiveness in Christianity is one of its highest virtues. It's basically like a part of master morality that Christ pulls down into slave morality. It's a very, very fascinating way he describes this. And this is why he says the last Christian died on the cross, because Christ was teaching all these people how to achieve uh, live in your live in the moment, amor fati. Now, he was obviously saying this on some level to be like, don't don't get fucked up with the Roman state because they'll kill us all. Accept your situation. This is sort of why Nietzsche Nietzsche is very harsh at Christ. He says Christ was not heroic. A heroic Christ would have attacked the Romans, like maybe later Judeans did. But Christ was not like that. Nonetheless, he is offering a virtue. He's offering an, an ability for you to overcome resentment. And, and Nietzsche was more worried about slave resentment necessarily than slave rebellion, if you want to put it this way. And so this kind of bitter and resentfulness, Christ comes and he's like, you know, uh, alleviate, alleviate yourself of all that. Free yourself from this these horrible emotions. And like God, the kingdom of God is within you. What is within you will destroy you if you don't externalize it and conquer it. And these are all very fascinating psychological things. So Christ is in some sense the overcomer, overcomer of the vengefulness and the, the offerer of forgetfulness and freedom and happiness in some sense because of these things. Um, so I think I think there are some very fascinating caveats. There's no conclusions with that stuff. I, I just think it paints a more broad picture, if you will, and allows you to ask some interesting questions, including the one where Nietzsche says, um, in order for us to make higher men, we will actually have to try to install a combination of these forces. Like we want them to be passionate and instinctive. We don't want them to be burdened with consciousness and philosophy cells and stuff like this. We actually want them to, to, to be like jocks. But at the same time, we do want them to have like memory. We do want them to have consciousness. We don't want them to have patience. We don't want them to have the ability to handle um, their their traumas and stuff like this. And these are all virtues that the slave possesses. So, and we want them to be able to maybe consciously be able to overcome resentment. And and these these are all things that the slave has to learn to do, you know. So these actually are a combination of virtues that would lead towards a a, a more a, well, like basically it's a it's a palette of paint colors. And if we want to make great people, why rub anything off? All things are valuable when it comes to achieving the goals that we want to achieve. So um, that might uh, offer a full stop on the the ancient past, and then maybe we can go into the current present. Yeah, that's good. One one thing I wanted to say that I didn't because it's not really in Nietzsche, but part of what christ is doing from you know 
my understanding of reading both the Bible and historical, you know, supplements to the Bible is that uh, his message. See, here's the thing. And, and we don't have to get too much into this, but I will say it. Um, Christ was speaking directly to the people in Galilee in the areas where he was and people were gathering to come see him. Right. And it was Paul who took that message and tried to spread it all through Rome. The people Christ was talking to about turning the other cheek and, you know, if someone – I forgot the parable where you end up giving the person your shirt or you give them your coat. Your coat. These were lessons he was telling the people who lived there in those conditions on how to treat each other. And uh, part of it was like if, if you wrong me, if me and you, Uber Boyo and Astral, are equals and we're both slave-owning Judeans under the yoke of Rome – and Uber Boyle somehow lets his goats graze on my lawn. Oh yeah, believe uh, it. What do I? What do I do? I I get to go beat the shit out of his slave because me and him are equal, so I can't hit him, right? I'm not going to hit him, and uh, and then I and then he's mad at me for that, or I even kill his slave or get some of his goats. He's mad at me for that. So then the next time I slight him, he comes and beats up or kills my slave. So one of the arguments for Christ's message, and I know people listening are probably going to want to refute this, but um, Christ is saying, you know, uh, stop doing that to each other. <laughs> just just let it go. Stop the cycle. You know, stop the eye for an eye cycle because you, you're, you're sitting here uh, doing this to each other while you're having to pay Caesar with his Caesars. So, what do we do with our condition that we've been given is we have to treat each other better. But um, this is, of course, the message for the slaves, literally for the slaves of the Judeans or the Judeans themselves as subjects of Rome. But then it's and this is how it actually relates to today. And we're, we're kind of off Nietzsche here. And um, like I said, uh, Paul is the one who took that message and spread it all through Rome. He thought Christ's message for those specific people was a universal message. Paul's the one who wanted to make it a universal message. Now, the way they did that was the hostile system, okay? And the way a hostile system was set up, because you didn't have the internet back then. You couldn't send someone an email. And most people weren't literate. You had to be lit. You had to, if you were literate in Rome, it means you could write and, and read Greek, which Paul could do, but most people couldn't do that. So you couldn't spread the message except by word of mouth. And it doesn't literally spread like a game of phone tag because it's, it's a massive far flung empire across the Mediterranean. So, so Paul, and it, you know, this is famous. People know this. He helped set up the hostile system where you would meet at someone's house and you would preach the gospel. But the people most, I mean, this isn't universally true, but it's the bulk of the hostile system were women, aristocratic women and aristocratic widows. Of course, Mary Magdalene, they say. So, so the inception of Christ's message was with a rich widow who kind of like, you know, what I've read is that Mary Magdalene was like a rich widow who kind of palled around with Christ and kind of basically like gave him, you know, the trust fund so he could go around to do his speech, uh, speeches and preach his allegories. And uh, she was buddy buddy with him. And then some priests 300 years later wanted to justify like marrying his his prostitute 
that he was sleeping with. And he said, well, Christ, <laughs> Christ hung around with a prostitute. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. And all the other priests were like, well, no, she wasn't. She was a rich widow. So then he's like, well, fuck it. You know, uh, I'm going to change the Bible to make <laughs> uh, to make uh, Mary Magdalene. Or I'm going to change the canon, you know, the accepted story about the Bible to say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. So I could have Mary my prostitute. But this is important, though. This is important because that began the tradition of the rich widow who Roman law, by the way, previously, if 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 I died, my estate didn't go to my wife. It went to my brother. It went to my next younger brother or it went to my oldest son. It went to someone besides the wife. Roman law eventually got changed. And this happened in the Middle Ages, too. Uh, but it's much more significant in Rome, though. Roman law got changed so that the wife, the widow could get the estate. And of course, what would she do with the estate? She would move in her merchant boyfriend or she would let a bunch of the rabble who wandered the streets of the city uh, uh, tearing shit up. They would let she would let them come sleep there. This became the hostile system. So it was like I liken I liken it to like Oprah's book club. Right. Where 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 they have a gathering with tea and crumpets and a bunch of the rabble from the street and a bunch of their slaves and a bunch of their other rich widows or their old spinster, you know, neighbors, aristocrats would come in and these fiery, young, probably ripped in shape, good looking, long haired orators would preach Christ's message and it would like spread this way, like a cult. So the hostile system would be set up throughout the different cities across the empire. And then people like Paul would travel on donkeys from house to house preaching Christ's message, right? This is how Christianity spread. So this also is how communism spread. I mean, literally is how communism spread, especially in Russia. But it also happened in France because Russia was trying to uh, modernize and they were trying to get up with the times. The You know, the story goes that Russia lost the Crimean War to England. And the reason why Russia lost the Crimean War is because they were like far, far behind England in modernization. And they and and, and this is the key. This is the important part. They were far behind England in liberalization. So they couldn't have this like aristocratic pool of people to pull warriors from. They had to pull soldiers from their population. They had to have a conscripted army. Right. And they had to do all sorts of other things in order to expand the state to like accommodate trade. They had to have lots of bureaucrats and uh, to, to, to have the educational system. They had to have lots of bureaucrats. Right. So they start freeing the serfs. They start giving them jobs. They start industrializing and they start uh, uh, giving people education that otherwise wouldn't have had the education. So these people are now learning to read and they're spreading ideas. And the, what was in vogue back then at that time when Russia started, when Dostoevsky was a young man and Russia started to liberalize and modernize, it was communism. It was Karl Marx. And there was a big intellectual debate going on all throughout Europe about what exactly, because there, there was all sorts of egalitarian uh, philosophies banging about at the time. I can't think of too many names of guys, but there's tons of them. Proudhon, Bakunin, um, Marx, uh, Engels, of course, and a bunch of other people. Um, the guy who wrote What is to be Done, whose name is uh, Petrushevsky. I think, no, it wasn't Petrushevsky. That was the that was the radical group, Dostoevsky. I forget the guy's name. But Dostoevsky hated this fucking guy because this guy was like a communist who was reading Marx and reading the the the, the Europeans. And he was writing his version of like an, a, a, uh, an egalitarian philosophy, right? So then you had these young people 
formerly of a caste that would have been illiterate and would have been serfs, they get educated and they're reading all of this uh, socialist propaganda, basically. So then they start pontificating and they start writing their little letters and their little pamphlets and they start getting things published in the newspaper, right? I mean, you have to think like Ivan and Raskolnikov. This is exactly who Dostoevsky is talking about in those stories, right? The upper class, the way the Russian upper, and this is what you were saying about the English thing, about how the English people like invited their own destruction. The upper class bourgeois rich women who didn't have didn't work. They were independently wealthy. So they sat around all day in their nice dresses, drinking, uh, you know, imported tea from China and England uh, and their pastries from France. They would entertain these young men. And these are good looking, self-assured newly educated young guys who just, oh, this is uh, so-and-so who just published an article in the newspaper about his new philosophy of socialism. And then they would come and they would host these tea parties. And these people would like spread their ideas that way. And they started agitating. And of course, it ends up leading to like World War fucking one and the Russian Revolution, uh, because this kind of thing. Guess where else this was happening? It was also happening in the Balkans. It was also happening in uh, Bosnia and Croatia and Herzegovina and Serbia. All of those people were liberalizing and they were going to get liberal educations in Europe coming back with these communist ideas. And they're throwing Molotovs and they're assassinating presidents as well. And this spreads like wildfire. And I was going to then extrapolate this. I'll leave it here and let you pick it up. But I was going to extrapolate this to today. The same thing is happening. Except it's the woke ideology spreading through technology. So before it was these physical networks of hostels or these physical networks of newspapers where people were publishing things in the newspaper and they were being hosted at their tea parties by the bourgeois upper middle class women. Now it's spreading. The woke ideology is spreading like a contagion to the same demographic of people uh, through the Internet. The Internet. The, the way we are kind of thrown together on the Internet and in social media and in, 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 you know, comment sections on YouTube or on Facebook pages and Twitter pages and uh, everywhere else, Reddit, Substack. It's like the online digital rabble. 4chan. Uh, what's the other one? Tumblr. This is like think of it like an agora. In in a and like each page on 4chan is a different agora and a different megalopolitan center in the Roman Empire where the rabble is all thrown together, spreading these ideas to each other. And it's the same thing over and over again. So anyway, that's when you gave your accounting. That's where my mind went. Uh, you know, that's absolutely fascinating. I had no idea about those details. Like I know I knew none of those details. And it makes perfect sense. Like I can imagine just an analogy. Like I love where you find history repeating itself uh, a russian woman holding her little cup of tea listening to some socialist you know talk about his article which is actually like a jungian archetype of a roman woman um in her little hostel that she inherited off her dad inviting in like some 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 guy from some greek dude you know who's got persuaded by some judean to believe in christianity because it's very similar to platonism or whatever it is it's just bizarre it's amazing it's just, it's just so and it makes perfect sense like once you understand the psychology you see how it spreads because people are always going to be attracted to stuff like this um 
the 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 week the week and the the week are too many you know and they they are always going to be drawn towards this there's some bizarre things you even find in rome the word liberty you know and um, that was the god that the plebs worshipped because they always wanted freedom they always wanted uh, the kind of representation so libertas their god was representative of that and, and christ actually like grafted basically onto that libertas the same that's the same sort of archetypal space that that christ took for these these people and it was the plebs complaining against against the patricians and what's bizarre is the patricians just didn't have a concept for freedom because they're already free all their conceptualizations were for power for um jupiter for for for, for supremacy and um enacting that and their gods were all like you know representations of this sol invictus and all these type of things like immaculate power and stuff like this mithras again like a, a warrior god and all these and it's bizarre but that's that's what you see that's what you see um these patterns show up and so to bring it back to our age like we've laid so much groundwork that most people will be able to put this together quite clearly you know like you see right now what is happening is there's these penetrative forces of people who are bitter and jaded um stoking up resentment towards the western canon so bloom lays one interest first principle i went into college and i was educated with critical theory and i didn't understand it and i i just instinctively didn't like it i, I trust my good gut maybe i'm a bit of a jock inside there somewhere despite my irish genetics you know uh, i'm sitting and, here looking at him for the listener and this guy's definitely a, a chad and a jock so uh, no, believe take him at his word no this is all I, i've got a overlay that astral can't see properly so i'm hiding my chin or something like this behind it um i went into college and they were teaching me critical theory and and Judah Butler and Judah Butler is like the foundation of all the gender stuff, you know. And I remember I just didn't like it because I was reading Judah Butler. She was like, men are the cause of all problems. She didn't necessarily say that, but you, you're getting that feel off it. I'm like, oh, this is bullshit. They handed me the Communist Manifesto. I'm like, actually was quite interesting of a read, but I just didn't get into it. It was just too bizarre, especially the, the later parts of it. And then they got to me to read like Capital and stuff and um, critical theory, which, you know, turned into critical race theory. And later on, obviously, you know, via the internet, I learned about like the Frankfurt School and cultural Marxism. And um, this is actually genuinely real. It's astounding when you see it. It's 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 that same nerd psychology, nerd and jock, where you have like the Western canon representative of the jock, the instinctive worldview, Weltanschauen of the successful West that colonized the entire world. And then you have all these like reactionary nerds from from germany who come over in and in america and construct this like nerds it's the this like the same process that's happening with the nerd in the corner inventing for stacy a different vision of how the world actually works that's completely falsified and it's this reactionary critical deconstructionist jack derrida i hate phallogocentricism perspective and this is this it's just so bizarre when you see it like that exact pattern happens in our universities and brainwashes every single kid to come through it i was never taught the western canon i had to go and read that thing for myself that's how i actually ended up getting into nietzsche because i went and i said this thing that they're always bitching about what is it and i had to go to the library no professor was teaching it and i pulled out plato started a plato and just read my way through it and by the end of it i was like nietzsche cell and i was like man like this is so much better than that. Like Plato, for example, was so clear, you know, Plato is just very elegant to read Plato. Whereas this is like Foucault jargon, like so hard to read that stuff. So first of all, in our spiritual centers, that, that premise has been established and it's being enacted. So an awful lot of what you're seeing with the woke movement is a consequence of like the Frankfurt school and stuff like this. And, and they're for, formulating a reactionary perspective. That's mad at the West, if you will. 
And um, I can understand why that happened because the West did break down. God is dead and all that stuff. And it's just, I think it's irresponsible of us not to seize on what Nietzsche just demanded that we do. And this is why this has happened. Like Nietzsche is basically saying, guys, this this whole ship is going to implode because the, the stabilizing force God is not is not working anymore. We better fucking stand up and like rearticulate a perspective to hold this together. Um, and if we don't, like, well, what, until we do, things are just going to go fucking nuts. And an example of this is the the Frankfurt School. They they're just jumping nihilism and giving trying to give it a meaning. And communism is another one. All these type of things. So the woke movement is another expression of that same instinct, and it's fundamentally premised on like falsifying all these type of things. Now, there's another angle to this that is very dark and very bizarre. This is to do with um, uh, race and tribes. As an Irish person, what's the fundamental perspective I have against the English people? Like we we hate them. They're the cause of all of our problems. They colonized us. You know. Now. <clears throat> The dynamic you see going on in the West right now is is fully like this is the most this is the most extreme part of it I noticed. It's the Irish resentment against the English scaled to uh, the colonized peoples against the colonizers. So the wasps, the English, weirdly the Germans, and um, the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, basically Western Europe as a whole, are to be held accountable for the grievances of all of history, and this is pure, clear, resentful slave morality. That, that it's it's based on this premise and the whole theory is the exact same thing it's like you go in and you say those wasps those english people those those um europeans if you will the irish get bunked in with it even though we we're a colony but they got all bunked into it whatever the white people they are um they're, they're the demons it's the same thing as the judeans said about the babylonians they're the demons that hurt everybody's feelings the only reason they achieved power the only reason they conquered the world is because they're just psychopathic you know they had no spices on their food so they just ran out of europe like madmen and just started to fucking kill us and all this type of stuff no mention of course of like showing up in mesoamerica and they're like cutting people's hearts out no instead it's like this is what's going on so we were we were angels living in paradise we were living in the kingdom of heaven we were living in the Garden of Eden until the Europeans showed up and pulled us into the trauma of history. And we remember, we remember what they did to us. They enslaved us. They took our lands from us. They colonized us. They hurt us. They abused us. And we will get vengeance. We will get rep reparations for this. We will get, we will, we will solve this problem. And then um, this is what you see is that like the, in the, in Ireland, like we, we obviously want the English to be held accountable. And um, the the blacks in America, the the Hispanics in America, the Jews—it's all this same pattern. It's the same thing, and it's turning into this like massive. It's it's like Christianity, but it's distilled out of any ideological stuff, and it's like the the function of slave morality, the actual psychological mechanism is turning into a religion. Like this is the, the motivating thing underneath wokeness, if you will, and so this is why you see this giant coalition forming against the West which is perfectly representative of Joe Biden's cabinet. You have Joe Biden, an Irish Catholic, who is, you know, no blacks, no, no, no Jews, or no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And of course, the Irish Catholic is leading a group of Jews, a group of uh, women, and a group of, of mixed mixed race people and, and some black people. And they're all like messed together in various ways. You have like Jewish women, mixed race women, uh, you know, Irish, other Irish men, other Irish, other, other Irish, other Jews and stuff like this. But it's basically all the minorities categorized together as a force of nobility. And you know what you're missing? Wasps. Not a single white Anglo-Saxon Protestant man, man there at all. They're completely wiped out of the run, running the American government. That's actually the same in England. It's an Indian man who's running it right now. I think the entire Anglosphere has no Anglo-Saxon Protestant 
in any leading position anywhere across the whole thing. Isn't that astounding? You had the the English people, the Anglos, the mass, the literal, the masters of the world, and then the masters of the world through America a second time, and this resentful slave morality, which is going to happen. Of course, you conquer the world, you're going to make enemies. Like we we are fucking mad at you still because you know you you beat us and nobody likes getting beaten. But that that slave morality has achieved superordinance over the masters. This whole story that like, you know, the fake story that the English were the, the source of all evil or the Anglos or the Americans, or whatever, has achieved victory over the the uh, the Western world, full victory over the Western world. And now all these people are through these, these institutions are worming their ways into positions of power and they're seizing governments and everything. And they're transforming the, the the entire nature of the project. It's like Christianity comes into Rome at the end and starts to shift it around and fuck it up, basically. Like they, they screw up all the old institutions by all these radical changes that don't make sense. And so this this is currently what's going on. Like this is actually the big money note. Sadly, it's the most awkward thing to talk about, but this is it. Like this, the slave morality attacking the masters, destroying Western civilization, it fundamentally is what it where it comes from. And it's not like a lot of people try to make it very specific about racism. I'm I'm afraid it's it's more just like a general ethos within all of us. Like the Irish are white, but we have it in abundance, you know, and that's a big, big problem. And then this is married to another very big problem where the English and the Anglos and the, the masters, the European Western masters are naive. They don't realize that this is this is what's going on. They're they're doltish. They're 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 their their head is above clouds. And so an awful lot of the people lobbying for this are like you know snobbish liberal English uh, English ancestry people and stuff like this. You go down to New Zealand and you'll find loads of people like this down there. And it, it's just it's it's abysmal. It's like what what the fuck are you doing? Like you're you're self owning yeah. yourself in the most can, horrific way possible. Can I jump in real quick? I'm pretty much done there, so I think that's no. The well, you you're using the word naive, and I want to know uh, one of the criticisms I hear about these. Uh, uh, I don't know the best way to characterize them all as one group. Not not just not just the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but also like the jocks and the chads and the the blonde beasts. Um, and I want to tell you the criticism I hear, and I want to know if you consider this naivete. One of the problems that people say and the reason why things are like this and the, the slave moralists and the nerds win or are winning right now anyway, is because the jocks and the chads and the and the and the, the blonde beasts are so successful at what they do that they accrue uh, um, uh, riches to themselves and rewards unto themselves that they lead this like uh, because, you know, the, the 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 liberal leftist criticism of like the problem with the world is individualism, which I think is total bullshit. It's total cope. It fits into what you're talking about. Individualism, people going out for their own selves is how things get done. People with a vision who want to uh, achieve something and overcome. That's how, you know, we go to the moon. That's how we invent the automobile and the plane and the internal combustion. And all the good things that have happened were because of an individual, you know, court, you mentioned the, the, the Mesoamerica Cortez, uh, he went on, he embarked on that as an individual, uh, self-aggrandizing quest, right? So individualism isn't bad. What I think the problem is, and it's not it's not these jocks who who embody individualism as like a, a critique 
the nerds, they critique them for being so selfish and narcissistic. I think that's actually a good quality that they have. The problem is, is being that way accrues such immediate rewards that they don't feel like they need to go out and like uh, 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 like assert themselves Mm -hmm. in society and change society to make it look that way because they've won. They have all the girls or they have the nice car or they have the successful business and they have the nice house and they have the um the 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 vacations and the boat and all that stuff and they're on top of the world they're successful at the stock market whatever so they don't really need to bother they don't need to have this like uh, uh social justice social moral uh code whatsoever because they've won they've accomplished what they want to accomplish and the people who 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 can't win based on the virtue of their own biology or the virtue of their own intelligence uh they they get where they get they they social climb through their conniving and cunning ways that you were laying out and then uh they're the only one there they're the only one at the top who looks like themselves so they have to bring all the other people that look like them up so that they uh form a bulwark against the chads and against the jocks who are going to easily trounce them on a level level playing field. So they have to bring a whole bunch more people that look like themselves. And then they have to change the rules to favor themselves so that mm-hmm. they can stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I imagine you agree with the way I just characterized that, but would you say the behavior <laughs> of the Chad that I just talked about is a form yeah. of naivete? Yeah, no, that's fundamental. Yes. I, like it, this is well studied even. And it's like, I think it's called the heredity crisis or, or a problem where um, almost any, amount of wealth is pretty much impossible to keep in a family past three, four, five generations. Because, you know, like the Rothschilds become the richest family in the 19th century and they're dominating true England. They are basically masters of the world. And people still say, you know, they're running everything today. But like, like what you see happening is that they set up all those banks and they do fantastic. Basically all of the 19th century, they're at the tippity top. Even the beginning of the 20th century, there's still big wigs and all this stuff. And then after that, things just start to fall apart. Like, you know, you look at their sons and their daughters and it's like you get a lot of one daughter opens a museum. I doubt it's very profitable. One son gets into like poetry writing, another son like export sports or something like this. Some guys take on the family thing. One of them fails. I think the one in France failed, like it went bankrupt or something like this. Yeah, I was going to say one of them got into financial corruption and he like he kept getting away with it, but it just kept happening. And I I think it ended up tanking him. Yeah, so, something like this, you know. So it's like they they had an incredible position, but then they they bungle eventually, you know. And they're still obviously powerful now, but it's not quite the same. Like they're not where they were. They're not like Nathan and um, Nathaniel, whatever his name was back in the day with the Napoleonic Wars. And the point being is that like that, what an incredible position, like so much wealth. The, the the financiers of the English Empire. It's like, bro, I don't think you get much more tippity top than that. And they still couldn't hold it together. You know, they couldn't remain um, running the fucking Illuminati as as much as they wish. And this is the thing is that it's it's just fucking hard, man. Like with the English, you know, look at Prince Harry. Like he's the he's the ancestor of savages that dominated the entire fucking planet. You know, they defeated Napoleon. Are you serious? Like what? What Superman? And it's like look at him now, and he's like he's cooked to his celebrity divorcee. It's like it's pathetic, you know. And why is that? It's just it's very very hard to install 
to re remain. It's like entropy, you know, just entropy wins in the end. And Nietzsche also pointed this out is that you can't actually be too idealistic about this stuff. Like the Romans are fantastic. I would have loved the Romans to win, but everything has to die. And it's not our right to turn around and say the Romans must live forever. You know, he, he, he thinks like if they had the will in them to do it, they may, yes, the great, if they had the creativity to deal with the problems, but they didn't. And so maybe they needed the fall so we could learn. And then it's the same question with us in the West. It's like, you know, the Western arc of success, the 500 years after Spain, Spain started it like in 1492, sailed the ocean blue, set up a, an, an expansionist trend. And that basically burned out in the 19th century with England and the Western Europe standing as masters over the entire planet for the first time in history. And you kind of have an issue then. It's like, well, like how that's very hard for that to propagate itself. That's very hard for that to push forward because, you know, the Anglos throughout the 20th century were just, they just had, they had all the beautiful girls, they had all the money, all these type of things. And you see then that the way that they approached life became weaker and more pathetic and weaker. There's this video um, you see of Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali is basically saying like, I want to be with my black girls, my black American women, not even Africans, black American women women understand me i love them and he's just you know he's talking about believing in his own race and stuff like this and it's very interesting like he says it and he's very down to earth and all this and then there's this english guy interviewing him he's like oh it's that's despairing oh that's wrong oh that's a ideology i can't i can't believe you think that way and all this and you, you can see the the english liberal is trying to is subverting like um subverting himself you can see like he doesn't believe in in he's developing all these libtard values even back then when they were doing so well and that's just slowly eroded the entire culture it saturated the whole thing and so the values are all wrong Nietzsche's idea of reevaluation of all values is on the money for this reason because that's the actual active thing that needs to happen and if that could possess these people wow a very interesting potential could come out of it because it's probably going to fall but imagine like it's like where Rome fell so depressing, so terrible. But as Rome fell, German men who had been living, hunting pigs in forests, charged down and took control and ended up setting themselves up for 2000 years as the aristocrats that ruled over Europe and eventually the world. And so the, the, the fall of Rome, the naive Roman jocks who couldn't hold their shit together, they basically had to fall. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't an incredible ascendant potential happening right in that doorstep. And that's actually incredibly important to understand is that despite our situation, despite the Anglos like fumbling the ball, it's it's natural, like it's entropy, you know? They, they've kind of, they had their time in the sun. It's very hard to maintain that type of momentum. They're, they're I, like, I worry for them. Like, I, I don't think, I, I don't know what's going to happen with England. England's not, like England's not right. It's not, it's not England anymore, you know, <laughs> and and that's scary, man, because that's like close to Ireland as well. So it's like Ireland falls down with England. America, America's always had a little bit of chaos in them, and I think Americans have a, like a, a bit more natural strength than the English and the and the the, the Irish. Will be interesting to see what happens there. But even if like even if that doesn't go right. It, something new could come you know some, some Nietzschean crazy organizers could jump up and do something absolutely incredible and and push things in a different direction there's a lot of really interesting options that come up with this stuff so yes the jocks become naive but in terms of what that means um it's quite quite a natural thing even the resentful like the resentful slave morali moralist the woke you know the actual best way to think about this is what happens with your body like your body right now is covered in bacteria you know, your body inside your stomach is full of all these things that it carries around that are foreign to it, that help it live. And it's actually a fundamental part of who you are. Like no empire can be pure. You're always going to have elements inside of it that are foreign because we there's no man's an island. But your immune system, your, your ability for your body to categorize um, what it is, it's so fascinating when you think about this, just this ability for your body to 
understand its identity, allows your body to hold a distance between what is the outside world and what is a friend helping you live. Now, when you die, your immune system stops functioning and your body can no longer uh, wield a, a force to establish the boundaries that make your body up. And all the bacteria on your own skin and inside your own stomach begins to promulgate and eat you alive. So you were this big, you were like the Roman city carrying around all these Christians. And then when you die, it just swarms up and consumes you and all of them flourish for a while. And then the whole, the whole thing just burns out and it's dead. And that's weirdly what sort of happened in Rome, you know, like Rome strong, got weak, Christianity blooms, and then it sort of dissipates and turns into something new. And you kind of see that in the West right now, like the West did colonize the world. It's, it, you know, it sucked in all these people. You could say it got greedy. You know, they're like, oh, we'll just take in all these slaves and all this type of stuff. And it's like, eventually when the West gets weak, these colon the colonized people are going to show up and they're going to like you know like the bacteria that were put on the skin they're going to eat it alive this is just like the irish you know we we pull that our part of the empire away from the english we said we're taking ireland back and all this and it, it when you get weak that will happen and so the qu kind of question is all right that seems natural if the people don't have the strength to do something about that what the fuck can we do about that are there any potentials like is there any is is there any force at all that's capable of, of sending things in a higher direction and having a future, I, I think, is basically the question. And as I said, the model that I really like is Rome is sort of representative of our dying West. The woke movement is representative of Christianity. Now, it's very easy to get caught up in that story and be like, the Romans should win, but they don't. But the pagan vitalistic Germans coming down from the north, they did. Now, that's an interesting question. Who are those characters in our age? And by the way, I might have to bounce soon enough. Yeah, I actually, I actually, I think we have to cut it off here. Um, this is a question I like to ask. Uh, I think the the Mexican cartels are the only viable uh, theory on who that would be. I mean, if if America collapses tomorrow, who's going to carve America up? They're the only ones. So, so here's here's another thought on this that I've been pondering a lot recently. Um, I'm not sure it has to be like a Germanic warrior cult like before. Maybe I think this is what BAP is saying. Like BAP is basically saying, go to yeah. a tropical island and uh, work, you know, get Dune advanced technology. And then um, when every, when shit hits the fan, you know, you can all fly in as like Iron Man and then rule again as like. Yeah, for sure. Island. For sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, but, I, but I, l l let me just add the caveat to that. Um, there's also an angle to this where it could be like uh, maybe more spiritual, like it could be more um, um, mental. So as Rome fell, the church did actually get born in Rome and established one of the most stable institutions that was very, very healthy institution for over 2000 years. And once, once you see that, you kind of think to yourself, wow, is, is maybe something like that could happen? Like maybe yeah. a, a new Western Christendom or something like this could show up. Maybe it won't even be Christian. Like imagine a Nietzschean Western identity or institution or infrastructure. Maybe technology f would facilitate something like this. Like you kind of already see that coming together. Imagine if like, and um, people who hold healthy values had uh, the ability to promulgate those values via the internet. And they weren't like basically hooshed off it. You would actually see quite a healthy culture and pretty much everything that we want would be achieved quite quickly. And I think maybe certain things would fall apart, but you would see things go in a, a decent direction going forward. So there, there's possibility. There's a lot of different profound possibilities that, that, that things can go. It could be cultural, it could be spiritual, it could be psychological, it could be like institutional, a, a, an, an anti-WEF or something like this. Or it could be very, very pragmatic and physical and militant, like mercenaries living on an island and we, we're listening to the Bronze Age pervert and then flying in or something like that. Well... We'll have to we'll have to leave it there and wait and see. I think uh, in a hundred years, 
I think in a hundred years, the world is going to look very, very, very different than it does now. Money, national borders, ethnicity, religion. I think these things are going to all look very different uh, and we won't be here to see it. But I'm hoping that by, say, 2050, we can at least have a pretty good idea of where everything's going, you know. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I worry that uh, Nietzsche's... <laughs> I don't I don't know if the vitalist Nietzsche movement is going to become something that takes over uh, and re reinvigorates and saves the West. But I do think an Elon Musk ish, uber, uber, uber rich uh, Caesar type figure might be able to at least kick the kick the completely uh, the completely uh, the usurpers out of Western power structure and take over and put us back on course to, to, to achieve our final destiny uh, of Western civilization, whatever that might be colonizing space. I don't, I don't quite know, but uh, yeah. So Nietzsche, Nietzsche still does factor in perhaps, you know, if, if we have someone come along and do that, if, uh, if Elon Musk gets an, gets, gets a mind that, uh, uh, he needs to start mining space rocks and he can't do it unless he cap captures the uh, tax flow of the American taxpayer dollar. So he has to become, you know, imperator of America in order to to build SpaceX up. I would say that would be a Nietzschean conclusion there. Crazier things have happened. That's all I'm going to say. They have. Listen, this was this was a big deal for me. This was an honor. I, you know, the show's uh, going on its second year, and I've had you in the forefront of my mind as someone I wanted to get on this whole time. So for that to to happen, you you delivered. You did not disappoint. I mean, this is going to be a tour de force. This episode, I can't wait to to release it. Fantastic, my man. Fantastic. Um, yeah, sweet bro. Uh, delighted. Thank you very much for having me on. It's always good. Like, you know, what's great is that you're actually very versed in in Nietzsche. Like you actually know the ins and outs of this stuff. Athenian's fantastic for this as well. Yeah. Like he knows, yeah. he knows a deeper than I do, you know? And so I'll be chatting to used to, and um, I'm basically like trying to, I, I have to get in the weeds. I have to be like, all right, here's the specifics and all right. this. And that's fantastic. Cause usually, usually when I'm talking to people, it's like, all right, here's the general big picture that I'm trying to talk about. And I'm trying to catch them up to the, you could say what the, the German incel is talking about. So it's, it's fantastic. It's a pleasure, man. There's even a section in this. I, I, I might even like to pull out and throw up on YouTube or something. Like That'd this. be amazing. So, um, Let's keep in touch yeah. about it. Right, and Hey, until I can get you back on, uh, uh, whenever you see me in a Twitter space and I'll, I'll do the same for you. Let's, you know, hop in and we'll, uh, we'll Fantastic. riff again. We'll riff again. We have a lot more to talk about. Fantastic. My name is good stuff. Good stuff.